is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 62, January 14, 1984. Well, today we have with us one of our Calcedon readers, David Rhodes, an economist who publishes the Rhodes Connection, an excellent commentary on the economic scene. We'll tell you more about the Rhodes Connection later. We have with us also John Stafford, whom you have heard before. And before we get into our discussion, there are a few things I'd like to go into. One of our problems today is that Christians misunderstand their role in this world. For one thing, they forget what the meaning of the church is. The word for church in the New Testament is ecclesia. And ecclesia comes from two Greek words, ek kaleo, called out is the literal meaning. Now immediately a great many people will think of uh, the meaning of that in terms of a pietistic withdrawal from the world. But that's exactly what it does not mean. Ek kaleo meant a military draft for battle. In a time of crisis, the ek kaleo was the calling out of those who were able-bodied to do battle. Now, this is the meaning of the church. Some of the old hymns that speak of the church as a mighty army understood the meaning of the word ecclesia. But today, the church is, unfortunately, just what Reinhold Niebuhr in his first book, written in the 20s, case book from a... or notes from the diary of a tamed cynic, uh, said. He spoke of the fact the church was once considered to be an army, but was now more like a Red Cross unit <laughs> to pick up the casualties who were hurt in life's battle and were no longer fit for action. And unfortunately, this is the nature of most churches. They have the casualties, people whom you have to minister to with first aid and hold their hand and uh, soothe their ruffled nerves. Or else a lot of people feel that they are to be separated from the problems of life. Or others who delve into all kinds of Kabbalistic symbolic theology in order to find hidden meanings in Scripture that nobody in his right mind would ever imagine to be there or could see there. One way or another, the Church has abandoned the problems of our times. Well, of late we have had some economists here. We've had John Stafford, of course, who is with us again, speak three times on the easy chair, We've had R.E. McMaster, Jr., another very distinguished economic analyst, and today we have David Rhodes. Because our feeling is this. Whereas there are some people who are approaching the economic scene in terms of how to get rich while the world goes to hell, our perspective is that Christians were not born to be suckers. We need to be prepared for what's coming, not because we're out to make money, but we want to be effective as Christian soldiers. There's a war on out there, and we need to be prepared from every angle. And one of the major areas of crisis today, in fact, our whole civilization, which is falling apart, the age of humanistic statism, it is falling apart because it has failed to give man bread. It has given him a stone instead. And now its economic solutions are proving to be disasters. Well, with that introduction, we'll get on. John, do you have 
something to say or something to ask of Dave as we proceed? Well, I think both, uh, Rush, and uh, I've got to say that I'm very happy to be here. I just got here this week after yes. some months of preparation, and uh, I'm very happily settling in, going around looking at property, ranches in particular. I think I've always been a rancher at heart, and now I'm getting my chance. <laughs> yes. You were out looking at properties today, weren't you? Right. With David, and uh, we we really enjoyed ourselves. It's a beautiful area up here. Uh, on point to uh, two of the things that you were talking about, uh, this concept of preparing for battle and uh, that we are soldiers in a larger fight, I took a uh, class in Ephesians at uh, Dominion Theological Institute uh, about a year ago, a little over a year ago. And, uh, of course, Ephesians 6 talks about exactly that, that uh, what's going on in the temporal world is just a reflection of the larger spiritual battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil, the forces of God and the forces of, of Satan. And uh, we're told to uh, be prepared to put on, you know, the breastplate and uh, all the various other parts of the armor uh, that we need uh, in a spiritual sense. Uh, but part of that, as you suggested, goes to the idea of uh, being shrewd and uh, wise. Uh, we're told all through Proverbs, especially, to seek wisdom mm -hmm. and uh, not to be uh, uh, the casual company casualties, <laughs> as uh, you were referring to them. We're, we're supposed to uh, be part of the Dominion Covenant. Uh, we're supposed to uh, go forth, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion. Uh, over the earth and establish uh, God's kingdom here, just as it says in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there should be a uh, heavenly reflection here on earth. And uh, so I agree with you 100%. I think it's really sad that, uh, as I understand it, the Episcopalian Church in the United States has thrown out of their hymn book Onward Christian Soldiers, and a couple of other uh, hymns of a similar nature, which they, in their infinite uh, lack of wisdom, decided uh, were too militaristic you know, for the modern age and for the uh, pietistic posture that they did want to take. Uh, it, it, it's really sad. Your recent piece on kenosis, I think, uh, ties into this uh, quite nicely. Was that a position paper? Yes. Right. Well, uh, this ties in with uh, the other uh, thought that you expressed, which was that uh, the Christians have to have, in effect, the wherewithal to do God's work here. And uh, I've always thought about it in terms of carrying out the Great Commission. And uh, uh, as you have pointed out in a number of your books, uh, Flight from Humanity in particular, about Neoplatonism, that it's just ridiculous to uh, try to totally separate the spiritual from the uh, temporal, that the two are together and are to work in harmony, and there's good in, in both. And uh, in that sense, we have to have the temporal wherewithal to carry the gospel throughout the world. And so uh, if we are, in fact, going through a time of economic crisis, it's very important for those who are part of the church, uh, the group that you uh, referred to, uh, to have the uh, not only the spiritual wherewithal, but also the temporal wherewithal uh, to uh, continue the church and continue the work of uh, spreading the gospel. On this point, uh, David and I have been having a number of discussions the last couple of days how we uh, view the uh, uh, coming years, especially in the near term. I think and correct me if I'm wrong, David, that uh, we see things pretty much alike in terms of the ongoing currency destruction process. Uh, we may differ slightly uh, in terms of uh, the near term on uh, exactly what's going on and what uh, uh, particular uh, uh, investment posture uh, would be the best. Uh, I, on the, I know we agree on one point, and that is, given uh, nearly any probable scenario, uh, that stocks have been the place to be for uh, over a year now. Uh, in my thinking, it's been almost two and a half years, and uh, I think that you felt that 
uh, definitely for a year and a half at least, uh, that's been a place to uh, uh, protect and enhance capital, whereas you felt that uh, uh, the deflation scenario indicated that uh, gold was at least uh, temporarily not uh, the best place to be. And um, uh, I'm not quite sure what your position is on bonds, so I won't try to articulate. I'll let you uh, have a shot at it. Okay, let, let me us know uh, what what your latest thinking is. I understand you have a five year forecast. Right, uh, it might be good to start with that. Um, first of all, though, like you say, um, and as Rush said, um, life is uh, something that you play with both hands. The spiritual and the temporal have to be played together. Uh, we've been given both of these worlds, and I think one of our main goals in life, in a personal way, is to learn to deal with them both. And the uh, Spiritual, of course, um, is in a shambles at this time, as are most of our other institutions, everything from economic to political. At the same time, though, I think it's because the old institutions have served their purpose, and what we're trying to do now is to move on and emerge into a new era. And, of course, the church will be a new church, or at least a revitalized old church, redirected old church, will be the vehicle that will carry us between the two. And I, I see now emerging, the, uh, of course, the new church, the new orientation. The um, uh, people are becoming disenchanted with the orientation of the old church, the bureaucracy within the church, the timidity of the church to deal with real issues and real lives, the fact that they put too much emphasis on things that are outside the community and they've abandoned the individual. The new church will, will correct all of that. There are some spiritual difficulties that we have to go through in this process, the same as we have some economic difficulties. I think at the end of the next few years, most people will come to understand what real wealth is, and they'll be able to define it in spiritual terms, and at that time, be able to convert their temporal savings and investments into something that will be more meaningful in the uh, spiritual and, and the uh, new church movement at that time. We've been given, though, a period of four or five years, which I think will be a very good investment climate, and it'll be an opportunity then for Christians to multiply their capital and prepare for the period that comes after that. We have a situation like a field full of chuck holes here, uh, not the least of which is the, um, the foreign loan situation. The banking system, the whole economic system can come undone on us like a cut golf ball in an instant. So any forecast has to be prefaced with the remark that if it does not come apart, then certain things will happen. If it does come apart, then it's a whole new ball game, and it can happen instantly. And we have to see what then the government intends to do, the government and the, and the banking system intends to do to offset that. Now, part of the process that we're in is the long-term inflation uh, that could last 100 or 150 years. It started a long time ago, and it'll be carrying on for a long time. During this long-term inflation, there are periods of maybe 30 years of disinflation or stability or outright deflation, as we saw back in the 30s. Now, since most of us, uh, most of our investment lifetimes um, are not much longer than 30 years, we have to deal with that before we deal with the 150 or 200-year curve, keeping in mind, then, that um, a disinflationary or deflationary period will end in another inflation but that'll be for the next generation to handle, possibly. Or it might be our turn in five years. It's really difficult to tell. But underlying everything is a possibility that the banking and economic system will come apart tomorrow. We start with the assumption, or I start with the assumption, that it probably won't come apart before the 88 elections. Now, if it hangs together, then certain other things can happen, and they're in a process of coming about now. I think the biggest thing on the horizon is a balanced budget. Uh, that will come from a cut in spending, it will be a cut in military spending, and it will also come from taxes, which will be raised after the 84 elections. There's no question in my mind but what Reagan intends to raise taxes. They will close that budget deficit. They uh, have improved or increased their harvesting, tax harvesting machinery, and I think they're going to tap the underground economy for more than they ever expected to hit them. Uh, other things are uh, happening. The increased cash flows are keeping the... Um, are preventing or the increased cash flows are permitting 
companies to uh, stay out of the uh, borrowing market, and so interest rates tend to stay down. There's a, a um, an analog or a model for what will happen if we have a balanced budget. Now that model is a period of the 1920s. After the 1920, after the 1920 uh, 21 collapse. That ended the inflation, and then there was a period of stability of 10 years after that, during which, of course, real estate and farming went into the tank, as we're seeing now. Uh, but the stock and bond markets took off, and I think that's the kind of a period that we're in now. Um, incidentally, the military, the cut in the military budget will come about as a result of uh, military stand-down in Europe, and I think we'll see disarmament, uh, serious disarmament negotiations start this year. Kissinger has already told us what his plans are. It will be shifted over to the disarmament negotiations this fall. We have some inside word on that. Timing may not be this fall, but those are the, that's the intention. And um, given the, the reality of a five-minute strike against Moscow, I think we'll see the Russians become very pragmatic, maybe even open up their borders in the next few years, and we can see something that looks like peace in Europe for the first time in most of our lifetimes. This is a very dramatic thing, and if it happens, why then I don't see anything holding a stock and bond market back. Now, a bull market in stocks has already begun. Bull markets come in three waves. I think we're at the end of the consolidation after the first wave. Uh, interest rates could be sticky until the, um, until the government begins um, receiving its uh, or, uh, income taxes in April. So they may not go down very much. But I don't see them going up very much either because of the high cash flows in industry and the lack of borrowing or the lack of interest in borrowing on the part of most of the uh, consumers. So what we're recommending now is that people begin accumulating for the start of the second leg, which may have started already, but certainly is bound to start sometime after April. And there's tremendous technical strength underlying the stock market at this time. Likewise, it's underlying the bond market. The second wave I would expect to run to 1500 to 1800 on the Dow, and it will probably finish within a few months after the election, after which we'll have the standard post-election correction, which will last through 85, and then 86, 87, and 88, we'll see the blow-off in the market, and we'll see 30, uh, 3000 to 3600 on the Dow by the 88 elections. And in a market like that, uh, it's tough to... Um, well, in a market like that, you don't need gold. In other words, if you have an opportunity to make money in the stock market, tripling your money in that kind of a period, I don't see gold or commodities or anything else offering you that kind of an opportunity. So um, our, we are recommending that you retain your core holdings, things that you haven't reported and that people don't know about. Keep those. You need that insurance because hard times are coming. But get into the stock market. But remember that they don't ring a bell when it's time to get out. So get yourself a good advisor <laughs> and someone who understands that this thing will end. It could end in one year or more probably it'll end in five. And um, when that time comes, then you cash in your holdings and you begin buying the things that will see you through the following period, which will be probably the greatest depression this country's ever seen. Now, there's a lot of controversy about whether it'll be an inflationary or deflationary um, uh, depression. I think that it'll be masked, and we talked a little bit about this yesterday. Um, I see the destruction of the middle class going on now. Most of the people are falling out of the middle class into um, poverty. There's a great cloud of people drifting across the country that are not in any of our statistics. They're, they they uh, drift from city to city. They're unemployed. They're un, unemployable. They've been destroyed spiritually and uh, physically. And these people can't hold an idea. Their attention span is too short. They're uneducable. Um, and because they drift, they do not draw unemployment. They do not um, uh, show up on the welfare rolls. But uh, this crowd is growing. The crowd of dispossessed Americans is growing. Um, this year, a thousand farmers in Michigan alone lost their farms. Just recently, the uh, sheriff of one county in Indiana put a stop on foreclosures because there were 700 families in one county in Indiana, farming county, that were up for foreclosure. The Americans are being dispossessed. They don't own any property. 
they're, um, uh, if they've been patriotic, they've found that their children and they themselves have been wasted in foreign adventures. Um, the whole of our institutions are discrediting themselves. They become illegitimate. And in this absence of institutions, the people come apart too. This will increase regardless of whether we have an inflationary or a deflationary depression, it doesn't matter. That is going to continue at a rapid pace. And at that time, then, you have to take your winnings or your earnings from the stock market and you have to begin investing in such a way that you can harness that, put these people back together, and begin bringing back legitimate institutions, the first of which will be a new church. Well, that's... Uh very thorough analysis and a brief compass of time, Dave. I appreciate that greatly. I do believe that uh, you are right. I think we're going to continue to drift from disaster to disaster, one variety or another, until there's a change in the people. And it has to be a church that sees itself as an army of the Lord that is going to create a new society alone will make the difference. And at present, we don't have but a small element within the church that feels that way. Now, it's a growing element. But uh, this alone, I believe, is going to make the difference because the crisis of a civilization is at heart a religious crisis. We've gone from God's law to fiat law, fiat money, fiat politics, fiat, everything. John, what are your reactions? Well, fiat to me means unreal, and uh, I think we're really living in an era of unreality. Uh, it's a fantasy world existence that many individuals have put themselves into, and of course you get the greatest concentration, I think, of people living in a fantasy world in Washington, D.C., which I just left, and uh, thank God that I was able to get out of there. Uh, actually, I do see a few good things happening in Washington. There are some younger conservatives in their 20s, 30s, and 40s who are true conservatives, true Reaganites, many of them uh, born-again believing Christians, mm -hmm. who are operating in the middle to lower levels of the uh, Reagan administration. And I think that uh, the army that you talk about is, in fact, being prepared. Yes. So even though I have uh, quite a few uh, problems with the administration in terms of the uh, policies, the uh, pursuit in certain areas, uh, their positions or lack of positions on certain issues that I'm interested in, uh, I really see at this point... Uh, no alternative to uh, uh, supporting the president for another term, uh, although, of course, I'm open to the possibility of uh, some other uh, aspect uh, to change that. But I, I think as a matter of practical reality, uh, the fact that this good work is going on and that the president has, I think, done a pretty credible job given the difficult circumstances that he's had to work with, such as the Dip O'Neill Democrats in the House constituting a majority, plus the fact that we all have to remember every time I start to feel critical of the administration, I remember that the president was subject to an assassination attempt, which was probably a lot more serious than we even now have been led to believe. So in the face of a uh, direct threat on his life, uh, he has... Uh, uh, at least if uh, allowed uh, these younger people uh, to uh, come into the administration to make a difference during this first four-year period and uh, I think uh, preparing themselves for uh, the rest of the century. And uh, that's something that we have not had since, uh, well, I can't remember how far back, uh, I guess the bad guys did the same thing in the 30s in the Roosevelt administration. And you brain trust. I like your word fantasy. Um, a friend of mine, in a very profound moment, once said that uh, the biggest problem with the human race is they, they extrapolate to the ridiculous. And we're at the end of a civilization, and we've seen the extrapolation to the ridiculous. We start with the emergence of the individual, 
during the Renaissance period. You know, it becomes the me generation, and it becomes uh, an obscene uh, quest for wealth, ego, and materialism. And obviously, we've extrapolated the ridiculous there. The other extrapolation is this illusion of wealth. And when we talk about the collapse of the economic system, really what we're talking about is return to reality. It's a very healthy thing. We have an illusion yes. that we're wealthy, but we've right. got four times as much debt out there as anybody can ever hope to pay. So right. we have to destroy 80% of this illusion. Now, people hang on to these illusions as if they were real. And to take away their property or to take away these illusions, to take away, in many cases, their entire identity, their whole ego is wrapped up in this. And to take away this illusion is to destroy their identity. It has to be done, and it will be done. But it's a rude shock to these people to be brought back to reality, to realize that uh, they thought they were retired and stuff for the rest of their life, and all of a sudden they're a plopper. That's a terrible thing you have to come to terms with, and people go crazy at a time like that. So it makes for a very difficult transition period. But uh, coming back to reality then, uh, we don't just do it in the economic sphere. With the return to reality, we get a new spiritual insight. Jung has talked about this, uh, Carl Gustav Jung, and his study of some of the manifestations, the... the, uh, uh, space manifestations and so forth, which he deals with in terms of a um, of a group fantasy or a group illusion. Mm-hmm. He says that there um, he says that there's never been a time in the last two thousand years when we've seen constellations in the heavens the way we're seeing them now. He says what we see is the sort of thing that would precede the second coming of Christ. And mm-hmm. I think that's what we're looking forward to. So it's a difficult period. But it's also, I think, one of the most exciting periods in 2,000 years, and I'm looking forward to it with, a, with excitement and anticipation. You know, one of the things that uh, I think is most significant and revelatory of the modern mind uh, was the Death of God movement at the beginning of the 70s. <laughs> Recent writers like Michael Harrington have echoed some of that kind of thinking. But the significant fact about the Death of God movement has been missed by many people. They never said there is no God. They simply said God is dead for us. Therefore, God doesn't count. Now, that's like saying I don't believe in the locomotive that's coming down the track I'm picnicking on. (laughs) Therefore, it doesn't exist. And it's that... uh, tremendous will to illusion that marks our age and the economic crisis is going to smash that no doubt in my mind about it the uh, thing I liked about that um, God is dead movement was this bumper sticker that says my God's fine sorry to hear about yours (laughs) (laughs) well another thing that uh, I uh, heard uh, just uh, within the last few days was uh, this idea that uh, just as usually when Time Magazine or Newsweek come out with a front page uh, cover uh, talking about either what a great bull market there is in stocks or what a terrible bear market there is in stocks, that marks the turning point. And uh, it could well be that uh, the uh, cover, I think it was Time, may have been Newsweek, which talked about the death of God, might have really marked the uh, beginning of a repentance, of a turning back, uh, the end of the former age and the beginning of revival. And I've heard uh, people from Benedictine monks in St. Anselm's Monastery in Washington to TV evangelists uh, and to really solid people such as Dr. James Kennedy of Coral Ridge Presbyterian talking about uh, seeing real signs of revival. I'm not necessarily even referring to the polls where such and such a percentage of the American population count themselves as Christians or born-again believers. I think that I think that's wonderful, and you know, hopefully, it's true of everyone who uh, so professes. But uh, I, I think I've personally seen signs of uh, of people uh, looking for revival, if for no other reason, as uh, uh, Rush, you were talking about before uh, the uh, taping started that. Uh, the, the powers that be, even, the, the non-Christians, uh, the people who are not on our side, 
uh, have to be faced with the reality that uh, their whole world is crumbling, that uh, many of their assumptions were false, that the utopia that they tried to build uh, with their own hands, trying to exclude God, not building it on his principles, is, uh, is uh, not working out, uh, that uh, we're having bad effects rather than good effects. And uh, even people like Peter G. Peterson, uh, who is the former chairman of Lehman Brothers Kuhn Loeb and uh, the pillar of the American Eastern banking and financial and political establishment, uh, has been going around now. He even left that firm to, to form his own smaller firm uh, in the venture capital area and uh, investment area. And I think one of the reasons was because he wants to spend more time going around the country and talking to people about the crisis that we're facing. Uh, for instance, he believes that Social Security alone could bring down the entire economic and financial structure of the United States and that uh, the United States as a uh, uh, democratic republic, uh, the political form could be radically changed unless we do something radical, and I'm using his word, about Social Security. Uh, it's absolutely insane that people, and we talk about unreality and fantasy world, for people who up until 1980-81, even if they started at the beginning with Social Security making contributions in 1937 of about $22 a year, these people uh, could have contributed no more than a maximum of $16,000. And upon their retirement, some of them are getting back fifty, a hundred thousand uh, over the next few years, two or three or four hundred thousand dollars for a sixteen thousand dollar contribution. Contrarily, a young person of age twenty or twenty one who starts contributing now, just based on the current levels of taxation and uh, levels of income against which those tax rates are applied will be paying in no less than $330,000. So to get the same bang for the buck, the same return on investment, that person would have to be paid back well over a billion dollars after age 65. Now, uh, unless we have a super hyperinflation uh, where, yes, that money will be paid in the billions, uh, but in terms of adjusted for inflation dollars, uh, it'll only be, you know, a few tens of thousands. Uh, we're in a real pickle, and we just cannot go on uh, paying multiples of what people have contributed to Social Security uh, where we have not taken the money and invested it. One way that I uh, put it about Social Security is that Social Security does not exist but for annual appropriations of the Congress. Uh, in other words, there is no trust fund, there are no money set aside, these are unfunded liabilities which can only come out of additional taxes. So either there has to be radical change or the country is going, you know, uh, down the road to perdition, not just uh, the way many of our uh, quite uh, conservative friends have been telling us for a number of years, but even now, the pillars of the Eastern liberal establishment. Well, I, I, I think that what we're dealing with here is a continuation of this illusion. And there are a number of people, particularly in government, in the bureaucracy, who have a vested interest in continuing this illusion. They have a fetish for control. These are very sick people. Uh, I, I consider them neurotics, in most cases psychotics. They're very spiritually ill people, and they have a they have an intense need to control the world, their world. And you'll find, as a psychologist will tell you, as their world becomes, as their world begins to fall apart, their fetish increases and their need to control extrapolates exponentially. Now, um, if I were to pick a period that I might see us moving into, I would say we're moving into the golden age. Of Western civilization. It could last two or three generations as the past golden ages that lasted in Rome and Greece. Now, historically, they look nice, but then you have to remember that history is written by the king's apologists. <laughs> when you look at 
the life of the average person during this golden age, particularly one who is spiritually aware, they are pursued people. They are pursued by these people with a fetish to control. They cannot permit individuality. They can't permit people to pursue another god. So they pursue the people. The golden age, then, would see an increase of controls on the individual coming from our own government in particular. And you talk about the social security system problem. It is a tremendous problem. Today, the government is studying ways of nationalizing all of the private retirement funds in the country to shore up the social security system. What this means, then, is that the old people will be drafted and enlisted in a very real way to support the program that was supposed to support them in their old age. Um, the increase in the uh, uh, ability of the IRS to harass individuals, the laws that they're making today, which are not laws, they're, they're administrative rules designed to permit these people to pursue you as an individual, and they do it in physical ways. They gain control of your property and therefore try to manipulate and control you. This is increasing. The use of the police and the military the use of spy agencies against their own people, this is increasing. And I think that the symbol of the era that we're moving into um, was when they moved the dump trucks in front of the White House. They, the government has become illegitimate. The people in there are running the bureaucracy and the government for themselves. I don't think it matters who's in charge. He's a figurehead. And as we talked before, people uh, try to assassinate the president. I don't recommend that. It's like shooting the figurehead on a boat. The guy that owns the boat is going to be pretty sore at you. You're going to end up in real trouble, but the boat doesn't change its course. So the senior-level bureaucrats are the ones who run the thing. They're the ones who set the directions, and they have a broad latitude of control. And they are the ones who are pursuing us. They're the ones who will launch the golden age. And in metaphysical terms, this is known as the age of the beast. The uh, social security number is a tag, like uh, it's a tag on you that claims you as government property, the same as the ear tag on a cow says that he belongs to, or she belongs to a certain farmer. It's the age of the beast, and if you want to know just how bad the golden age can be, read that. And the two things to keep in mind, in the golden age in Greece, they assassinated Socrates, and the golden age of Rome, they persecuted the Christians. In the Western uh, Golden Age of the Western Civilization, we'll see that again. But this is part of the fire that we have to walk through. Remember that human nature is uh, forged in the fires of adversity. This is part of the fire that we have to walk through before we can reach the other side and, and qualify to uh, enter the new age. One of the pictures I have somewhere in my library, I've got to look for it someday, is a picture taken from uh, the White House looking out towards the old State Department building. Nothing but an empty pasture between and the Taft family cow tethered outside the White House. <laughs> now, as recently as Taft's day this century, Washington was a village, and the president had a family cow tethered outside on what is now the uh, lawn and the grounds. The change began with Woodrow Wilson when we began to create the golden age of bureaucracy, of monumental government buildings. And Washington has moved from a village to a world capital. And we have lost our freedom in the process. As recently as 1952, when my folks uh, moved to Washington, it was considered a small southern town. Mm -hmm. And everybody knew each other, and there was great civility. There were manners. Uh, the streets were uncrowded. The trees uh, grew and bloomed very nicely. And it was, frankly, a very uh, lovely place to uh, grow up. I you know, have to really be thankful for... Uh, the opportunity to uh, be at the seat of government in a very pleasant, physically, uh, place uh, at that time. But now uh, we've got gridlock uh, imported from New York. 10% uh, of the population of Washington is homosexual. And a third statistic that's really frightening is that uh, out of every 1,000 pregnancies, over 630 are terminated by abortion in the District of Columbia. 
That's the kind of a uh, rotten uh, society that the fantasy world utopians have created for themselves and us uh, in Washington. Matter of fact, I'm hoping Rush to write a piece. I've got the title for it, as I do for many of my pieces, that I, maybe I'll finally have a, a chance to uh, get down and, uh, uh, to writing. It's called uh, Washington, D.C., Left-Wing Capital of America. <laughs> well, we uh, Christians have a responsibility as God's army to take over this world for the Lord because everything must be brought, every thought we are told, that far into captivity to Christ. Mm -hmm. And we are told the cry will go out in due time that the kingdoms of this world are the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. So we need to welcome this growing collapse for all the tragedies and disasters it will create as an opportunity because it will bring the world back to reality. It will make possible Christian reconstruction. And we're going to have it because the course that is being pursued is suicidal. These people are killing themselves off, are destroying their own ideals. There is a line in the poet William Blake uh, who had a lot of unsound and heretical ideas but this sentence always struck me as very true he wrote I saw the finger of God go forth giving a body to falsehood that it might be cast off forever hmm. in other words God is allowing mankind to realize his Babylon his tower of Babel right. in order to smash it because Man himself is going to see how monstrous it is. Right. Absolutely. That um, reminds me, after I saw the movie Ten, somebody said, uh, there's an ancient curse, may your fondest fantasy come true. <laughs> <laughs> and we're realizing our fondest fantasies. Um, well, that sounds like the Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. <laughs> I, I, we live in interesting times, and I don't consider it a curse. I think it's very yes. exciting. I, I felt either. desperate for a long time while I felt a captive of my institutions, and so long as I didn't see any alternatives. But then I read a piece that talked about how the Christian voluntary communities rose in the first and second centuries to as an, uh, an almost, well, as a natural safety net to catch the people who were falling out of the empire the institutions within the empire and the institutions today are becoming illegitimate as we talked about before people are seeing that and they're turning away from them because institutions human institutions are supposed to help a person realize and actualize his gift from god uh today's institutions are drafting you for something else they're using you for someone else's purposes. And when people catch on to that, they drop away. They withhold their support for the institutions, and they go in search of something then that will help them to actualize and make sense of their own lives. And today, communities are popping up all around us, and they're not just farming communities where you can go and uh, join a monastic order, but they're uh, networks of, um, of uh, people who are on the same spiritual path and uh, almost magically, they find each other. They find that their neighbor has been on this path for years mm -hmm. and hasn't said anything about it. But the network is all around you. And when you become so discouraged with your life the way it is, then you're primed to discovering the network that's there, already around you. Now, a doctor told me a long time ago, don't go prospecting for patients. And what I'm discovering is that when a person becomes so disillusioned, when he becomes in touch with reality, then he will come looking. He becomes then a, a, a patient. He knows that he's got a problem. Then you can talk to him and you can help him. And these networks then are picking up these people the same way the Christian communities used to go into the cities and look for the fallen there. Now... You talk about uh, running a first aid station or a Red Cross. I like to look on it as a recycling era mm -hmm. yes. where these people are being cast off by a very sick society. 
but they're still alive, and now they're sensitized, and we can pick this rubble up and put it back together and make an army for Christ, make them whole again and send them back out into the world, and they can bring about the whole new world. That, to me, is the future. Yes. Well, that's really interesting because I think we talked uh, earlier about the uh, work of the early church, and of course it had a side benefit of building up the Christian community, where the Christians would go out in the highways and byways and under the bridges and take these little children who were cast away by the Roman citizens. Uh, they didn't want, let's say, a, a baby daughter, like in mainland China today. Uh, there's uh, infanticide against uh, uh, little infant uh, girls. And uh, they scooped them up, took them home, adopted them, and brought them up in the Christian faith. And it sounds uh, very well, similar, like a very similar operation. It's happening today. You talk about, um, and, and in fact, the number of terminated births in Washington, D.C., when the government was funding them, exceeded the number of live births. Oh. Uh, it's a necrophilic era that we live yes. in. In a period like this, the spirit is contained and not permitted to grow, and it turns acidic. And the people then turn on themselves. The biggest manifestation of this, the hate for life, is the, the uh, destruction of life. And it takes place in spiritual murders with child abuse and spouse abuse, and it takes place in real murders in the case of, of abortions. There are communities today that go looking for unwed mothers and others who want to terminate their births, and they say, if you would just have the child, and then we'll take care of it for you. And that, to me, that's an affirmation of life, and I find that really exciting. Yes, and there's, uh, this is why it is so important, uh, the point you've made, David. The Bible tells us, hope deferred maketh the heart sick. And when men keep thinking, well, when the crash comes, then we can have freedom 10 or 20 or 30 years down the road. You can't live that way. And if you're living in terms of uh, preparing for catastrophe or waiting out the catastrophe, you're a dead duck. <laughs> but if you say here and now, I can build a community, I can establish a fellowship, I can do my part in God's kingdom in establishing his order in my life and the lives of those around about me, then you're a part of the future. Exactly. You're a part of the coming world. A, um, <laughs> there's an old story about um, uh, this one fellow explaining that uh, we don't have problems, all we have are opportunities. And his friend looked at him and says, well, I seem to be confronted by an insurmountable opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> you do need that spiritual turnaround to be able to see the good that's coming. Yes. And it's right there, right yes. next to you, and it's side by side with the bad, and it's just as intense as the bad. We're at that mm -hmm. point where two curves cross. One's going downhill and the other's going up, and you can step across just as easily as you step across from one stairway to another. You know, uh, excuse me a moment, John. Uh, before we go on with that point, I don't want the time to run out on us before David has a chance to tell people uh, what his address is, how much the subscription is to the Rhodes Connection, and how much for a sample copy, if he uh, sells a sample copy. W would you tell us? Uh, well, we don't give samples, but I've uh, summarized a um, short report on our five-year forecast, which we're giving away for free, and I'll send subscription information with that. Write me, David Rhodes, Box 1047, 1047, Ashland, A-S-H-L-A-N-D, Oregon, 97520. And just write on there, forecast, and uh, I'll send you a copy of that and some subscription information. And I'll also send you some information about a speech that I made last summer that talks about voluntary communities and about uh, the um, end of our institutions today, which I call Wake for the Western World. The last name is Rhodes, R-H-O-A-D-S. If I could make a uh, plug, uh, David, I don't know how many copies are still available, but uh, I know I bought quite a few copies of your book, How to Survive the Spastic Economy, and uh, I've been uh, giving it to uh, clients as a uh, part of my investment service. I've been 
donating copies to my church to be resold and the proceeds to go to the church and handing them out to members of Congress such as Steny Hoyer, the liberal Democrat from uh, Maryland, Prince George's County, that I went to uh, school with at the University of Maryland. And uh, I think it's really an excellent book, even though uh, it was written uh, a few years ago, still because you take the longer-term approach and talk more in terms of principle than, you know, the immediate uh, uh, way to make money. I, th I think it's still of great value. No, I appreciate that. We do give the book as a premium for new subscribers. We're getting pretty close to the end of that, but um, that along with several other premiums that I give out and two special reports on um, disarmament and on a balanced budget um, brings people pretty well up to date on my thinking. Uh, at the same time, it gives them the context that I've been using since 1977 as an analysis. The thing that I was going to say uh, earlier, Rush, was that I remember part of my uh, process of coming to where I am today had to do with a meeting that I had with Donald Story uh, over in Bermuda back in, I think, 1978. Donald is the uh, co-editor and owner of the Bank Credit Analyst, which is one of the most respected uh, publications uh, in uh, the world in discussing the uh, domestic and international banking and monetary scene. And, um, you know, each of us has to do what he thinks best, but the conversation I had with Donald, even though I came to a different conclusion, helped uh, me uh, to understand where I was coming from and where I had to go. Donald was basically saying what you were talking about, that, uh, well, if the whole world is coming apart, he was going to make sure that he had his assets in the right place so that he could survive and then rise Phoenix-like out of the ashes. And I guess as I, I didn't disagree that that might be the best thing for him to do. He was a Canadian citizen living in Bermuda and in the process of buying a home in London and putting some of his assets over there. But the more I thought about it, the more I said, well, you know, I'm an American, and uh, I love my country and my community and all of the people that I know are there. And uh, instead of trying to run off to uh, <clears throat> Australia or New Zealand or Alaska or, you know, some other place to get away, I said in, uh, instead of uh, cutting and running, I would stand and fight. And so that really was an important turning point for me personally. And I said, okay, uh, that's, that's done now. I'm going to stay in the United States and I'm going to do everything I can both uh, in terms of building my personal position and in terms of being active politically uh, to try to help turn the country around. That's where I ended up as a vice chairman of the Reagan Finance Committee and supporting uh, certain uh, members of Congress and the Senate of a rather conservative nature, Steve Sims and John Ruslow and others, uh, over the last uh, few years. And I think it's paid off. The only thing that I'm thinking now is about the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution, where it says basically that uh, that uh, any unenumerated powers given to the federal government are reserved to the states, and uh, if uh, there's anything left over after that, it remains with the people. And I uh, sense very strongly, and we were talking with John Saunders about this the other night, that uh, and it ties in with uh, your book. Uh, talking about that, uh, the basic uh, unit of, uh, of uh, the political society is the county. But I think we're going to see, uh, whether we like it or not, and I like it, uh, a return to local control and uh, a great strengthening uh, in the power and influence of government at the local and state level and really a diminution of the, uh, of the power and control at the federal level. I have to agree with David that the uh, the government has taken a number of steps under TEFRA and other recent legislation to beef up the IRS and to make it easier for the government to uh, you know go after the federal income tax dollar. But at the same time, I see people resisting that uh, in a very personal way, and and uh, also I see this. Uh, uh, almost imperceptible uh, now, but I think it will become more uh, apparent as time goes on, shift of power back to uh, the hands of the local people. 
And just one uh, other point uh, that's connected with that, I've been talking with Herb Titus quite a bit and uh, Jim McClellan and others about this idea not only of judicial tyranny but also of uh, defunding public education, putting all schools on a tuition basis, be they public or private. Now, personally, between you and me and the fence post here, uh, I don't see any excuse or reason for public schools as they are currently constituted. Uh, but even if you had them, the idea is that you would fund them with direct contributions, endowments, gifts, uh, that sort of thing, rather than by using tax money. This is another aspect of this concept that I uh, just mentioned, of restoring local control, parental control, accountability to the system. And, uh, Rush, I know that you, in particular, being considered by many the father of the Christian school movement and the private school movement uh, in America, you've written extensively on this, the messianic nature of American education and other books and uh, publications. I don't wonder if you have a comment on that particular specific idea. Yes, the interesting thing to me is that within the last two or three years, a number of books have been written calling attention to the fact that the public school movement is a disaster. As a matter of fact, uh, without mentioning any names, one prominent politician was interviewed by uh, three high school journalism students, and uh, he figured the publication of this would only be on the uh, local school paper or an essay submitted to the teacher, and he said that the public schools were finished. They had destroyed a generation. He saw no future in them. As far as he was concerned, you could wipe out the present generation. Uh, they took it to their uh, local newspaper, and it refused to publish that. <laughs> but I think more and more people and politicians are becoming aware of that fact, and certainly the Christian school movement is growing by leaps and bounds. The result is today from a fourth to a third of the children of this country are not in public schools. They're in Christian schools. They are in home schools, and there are a hundred thousand of them in California alone. Hmm. And it's a very rapidly growing movement. Well, this tells us there's a tremendous revival of freedom underway. People are saying, our children belong to us and we're going to control them. Mm -hmm. This means a very sizable element of the population. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a crisis right now in Nebraska over this public school issue. I had a call from the uh, Department of the White House about it just yesterday. And it isn't a problem that's going to go away. It's building up. Right. which tells us that people are turning back to freedom and demanding it. In the late 50s, Carl C. Zimmerman and Al uh, uh, Cervantes wrote a book entitled The Family. And in it, they declare that the beginning of the greatest strength and freedom of the family was ahead of us. Hmm. Interesting. So they predicted what has been developing. Hmm. The family is disintegrating out there, but within the Christian community, it is becoming a, a tremendous force that has Washington upset right now because of what's happening in Nebraska and all over the country. Well, that's really and fascinating, so. uh, for, excuse me, for a couple of reasons, one of which you've written a piece called The Failure of Men. And uh, in that, basically, what you were saying was that men have been irresponsible. They have not uh, maintained uh, the uh, responsibility uh, for the family and for their work and so forth and so on. Uh, it seems to me that we were just discussing this fantasy world thing, which really is a reflection of irresponsibility. Mental illness and uh, fantasy world living is irresponsible. Maybe the uh, constructive... Uh, uh, idea that we can come away with is that uh, that process really is uh, reversing and that yes. uh, parents in particular are now willing to take responsibility for the education of their children. That's what you're talking about. 
the the reemergence of individuals taking responsibility for their lives. The centralization thing has gone as far as it will go. There will be people in the central government who will keep trying to impose their will on us through that mechanism, but people are abandoning it. They're withdrawing their support of it. They're turning themselves to the local level, and they're controlling themselves at the local level, and in time they will develop their own local institutions that will protect them from their own federal government. In Rome, the um, barbarians surged into the empire, and they were co-opted by the um, provinces. And they turned them into policemen. They turned them into their own army to keep the tax collectors away and to protect them from Rome and its voraciousness that accompanied its decline. Um, this is happening in all spheres. Vigilantism is on a rise because we don't have a justice system. Mankind will have justice. Uh-huh. And yes. the vigilante movement is not a movement toward lawlessness, as the government would have you think. It's a movement back to lawfulness. People don't like vigilantism. It's the second best. But we've got to have some kind of law, and so it's coming back. We will have law. We will have order. We will have a social fabric. And it's coming together at the county level. Gary North, I think, did an outstanding job on that. He said, get active at the local level and create the kind of world that you want at the local level. And it's happening. And I think it's very exciting, very encouraging. Well, our time is up now. Thank you, David. It's been a delight. And I know that everyone who hears this will appreciate uh, the information and insight you've given And John, thank you. We'll be using you now that you're one of us (laughs) right along. Thank you all for listening, and we'll be with you again in two weeks.